Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Felipe Santos, and today I'm going to be talking to Professor Austin Choifis Patrick from the University of San Diego and the University of Nottingham about his new book, What Slaveholders Think? How Contemporary Perpetrators Rationalize What They Do, from Columbia University Press. Austin, welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I appreciate it. So I was hoping that uh, to start the interview, you could just like tell us a bit about your path, like where you've been working before, where you're working now, and so on. It all started a long, long time ago on a trout farm in Pennsylvania where I was born. I don't know how far back you want me to go. Um, I'm at the University of San Diego now. I'm a concurrent faculty member um, at the University of Nottingham, where I'm part of something called the Rights Lab, which is a consortium of, of uh, scholars working on contemporary slavery issues and abolition. Um, and here at the University of San Diego, I'm at the Croc School of Peace Studies, where we work on peace and conflict issues. Before this, I was at Central European University's School of Public Policy, where we know each other from. It's good to see you. Um, and was very, very happy to, to be there for a number of years as they, they were doing something they've been doing for a long time, which is to be promoting open society and open inquiry and academic excellence in places where those things are not always welcome, but are desperately needed. And so I think that's a, the shortest version of my academic career. And then uh, I found very interesting from the book that instead of doing what most social movement scholars, and I guess that also most slavery scholars do, and talking to, you know, those who challenge the system or those who suffer it, you went and talked to basically slaveholders themselves. So how do you come to the idea of uh, writing this book? Well, I mean, it's, yeah, it's... it's, it's uh, that's why we're in this game, right? We want to change the world and we want to change the world... With, for the better and on behalf of people who have been left out of um, economic systems, political systems, social systems. And so I think like many other social movement scholars, I approach this issue like I approach lots of, lots of issues thinking who's left out, where are resources, why are they not being properly um, assessed and, and shared? And this is, you know, this is before coming to the, you know, my scholarly work on social movements, but as, a, as an activist working within the activist space uh, for nonprofits, I, this is what I care about. It's why I joined the movement, right? And then when I entered so, sort of the social movement scholarship space, I realized that was what social movement scholars thought and cared about. And it, it's this wonderful sort of homecoming to go from kind of activist land into academic land and find many people with similar sets of motivations. And so I, I found that to be very uh, comforting in some ways. Simultaneously, though, it means that we don't always ask questions about the other half of of uh, relationships of exploitation. We don't always ask questions about perpetrators. For example, in the civil rights era, civil rights scholarship in the United States has focused predominantly on what it took for movements to mobilize and succeed, and a lot less time on who were the folks who were against equality, and who was it that was in favor of segregation? I, um, I should start collecting 
biographies of Bull Connor because it would be easy to do. There's hardly any of them because he's not celebrated. He's forgotten. And and along with the forgetting of the bad guys, we forget the way their logics work and we under uh, sort of theorize how it is that they are part of the social change that people like me really, really value. So as a long answer to your question, um, but but from a theoretical and sort of scholarly perspective, I think it really matters that people who want to change the world deeply understand people who don't and for whom the changing of the guard or new ideas and new values and norms threatens the, the foundations of their existence. This is something that has become all the more important in the last couple of years in my home country, the United States, right? It matters. People who don't want to be part of change matter because they'll come back with more things to say. And if they have the vote, which they should, it, it has consequences for everyone. So I'll end my monologue by saying we should understand both sides of human rights violations, both sides of struggles for equality. And then one thing also that um, I would like to ask you to help us uh, understand better is uh, what you meant by slavery, because oftentimes when we think about slavery, we think it, think it in this way of um, African-Americans in uh, cotton farms that were bought by the slaveholder and they had to stay there their whole lives. But in the book, you present a different take on slavery. So I was hoping that you could explain a bit what is this. Yeah, so the... so. Slavery is one of the oldest sort of human relationships. I'm a sociologist. I care about, about relationships in public. And slavery is a very old form of social relations. And it has looked, it has taken different forms over the you know thousands of years of recorded history. And sometimes it's been used to mobilize uh, additional people in war, or it's supported large infrastructural projects, been predominantly exercised by the state, or in other cases, predominantly exercised by religious groups. The slavery that the American public is most familiar with is the most recent and the most proximate. It's stuff that happened here fairly recently. But it's one form out of many forms of slavery. And so I think the the communities that I'm part of tend to talk about slavery with down to its constituent parts, which would be the control of one person by another through force, fraud, threats, or coercion for the purpose of capturing that person's total economic capacity. So it's using violence to steal somebody else's productivity um, and doing that in such a way that, that prohibits them from doing something else. So the means and manner and mode that takes vary over time. So I was looking in this case at bonded labor in India, something that is a, a itself a form of a form of contemporary slavery. It's not that contemporary; it's actually quite old, um, but that has the same set of you know controlling people against their will. That same definition applies to bonded labor and to the American South before before the Civil War. In both cases, institutions are used to. Uh, ensure people are held in place. The institution that was used in the United States was, was the law. Now, slavery is illegal everywhere. And so the dominant institutions that are used to uh, coerce people into these forms of exploitation tend to be economic, psychological, um, and are less often reinforced by the state and by law. So those modalities change, but the underlying human rights violation, that that moment between people has remained constant. And unfortunately, there's, by our best estimates, more people held in slavery now than at any other point in history. And a lot of that has to do with population explosion, <laughs> lots and lots of people. Um, and so we're, we're seeing this illegal everywhere, but still practice in areas where people are able to gain leverage over others.
And then you discuss in the book also how um, most social movement scholarship, um, when they have studied targets, uh, they have basically focused on the state because obviously it has been for a very long time almost the like only target that social movements uh, addressed, and it's also the probably like still the most important one for social movements. But then you say that this kind of definition is more complicated, and there are more actors and and uh, contexts that can be also targeted by social movements. So which are those? So we can look at the at the movements that are prevalent right now in a in a couple of national contexts. So the United States has Black Lives Matter, where the challenge is for both uh, police police forces and systems of state representation in in, you know, in policing. We have the Me Too movement, which is around what is that around? Is that trying to take down in particular rights violators, or is it actually tackling? And calling into question systems of privilege and oppression, right? So, so Me Too is a great example. It came from a hashtag, and it's targeting patriarchy, right? So, again, the the call is not that the government should pass anti discrimination policies, right? The government should step in and pass laws. It's that societies should learn to behave in new ways in relationship to one another, and that's something that the social mo- social movement scholarship focused on the importance of the state has done a good job alerting us to the importance of, of new policies, but, but uh, has left us less well-resourced, let's say, to talk in enduring ways about social movement targets like corporations. We know very little about if we have a, bo- a boycott of some sort, how is it that the corporation decides what to do next? How is it that they decide whether or not they're going to raise prices or drop a particular line or r- respond to the movement? And it's because why? Because we were, we used to be protesters, and we jo- and then we become academics, and we don't actually have a lot of friends in some cases who are in the corporations being being targeted, and so I think for a bunch of reasons we are not then aware of where all sort of what's happening when move its movements target, let's say a corporation, um, and we tend to focus on the state. So. And then um, by trying to. Uh put targets in the equation of how we analyze uh, social movements and contention more generally, um, you present an update version of the classic uh, political process theory. Uh, and I think that is very interesting because uh, in the way that you present it, uh, first you make it uh, more interactive because we have two actors that are strategizing, they present dilemmas and so on. And also you kind of like make a good job in bridging these kind of uh, macro and meso level uh, theories of social movements by first presenting a strategic interactions and something that is repeated over time. So it's not a one-off uh, interaction. And also that you show that not only social movements face dilemmas, but also incumbents uh, face dilemmas and they have to evaluate the resources they have. Sometimes uh, they're not not good at doing that job. So can you please explain a bit uh, how this updated political process theory looks like after uh, putting emphasis uh, on targets? You just said it. That's the, your question is the answer to the question. And that's in, that's in the second chapter of the book that I say in the first chapter, don't read, because it's very boring. It's very boring uh, uh, social movements, sort of insider theory talk. But, you, but you've, you've crystallized it exactly, it captured it exactly. The, the punchline, again, from social movement theory, sort of the best the industry standard of social movement theory from 
um, you know, the 80s onward come from this political process model that asks, how is it that over time, different actors actually engage around change? And the model itself, when it says different actors, it means the protesters and the incumbents, whoever the powerful was. And so social movement theory, and this is like, this is, now we're just going to be very geeky for a minute. Social movement theory has done a good job theorizing that relationship, but a bad job getting into the, in, 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 its, in our field work, getting out there and talking to the other half of that relationship or the other side of that equation. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a funny place to be as a scholar where the theory is good. We just haven't gone out to actually talk to the people we say we should have been talking to all along because you're right. These are relationships and, and, First moves by a by a social movement, for example, create responses by the incumbent or by the target, whoever it is they're protesting against. They do something in response. Or the police decide we're going to go home or they decide we're going to break out the batons and the tear gas. They decide to do something next because we're just human. And then the movement huddles and says, well, what are we going to do? How will we respond? And in this way... These these social processes play themselves out on the streets or in the back room or or you know on Twitter, and different and and each each of those two sides have to figure out how to respond to one another. And they're not just the two. It's not just those two sides. There's the media watching sometimes. There's important other allies that let's say the police may have. They're trying to signal allies or the so you're trying to convince me to join the movement, and so you're being sure that your tactics and strategies are resonate with my values in a way that I will join and you won't alienate, you know, possible bystanders who might be allies. So all sorts of really interesting and important things are happening there. And we do ourselves a disservice when we just go and talk to protesters, for example. We need to go out and talk to a, a wider array of actors because that's what real life looks like. I mean, that's actually how all of this works. So for the listeners that were a bit uh, like lost uh, and were not paying like enough attention to the nerdy social movement talks, we are now getting into the exciting empirical part That's of right. the Oh, I thought the nerdy stuff was exciting. I was very <laughs> excited about that. Let's cover the mic. We can keep talking about it. Okay, we have work to do. Let's go. Okay, so then uh, one of the interesting things that you present here uh, is that what you said before, that slavery is illegal everywhere. But in many places, such as uh, these ones that you're presenting, it's not necessarily culturally condemned. So how do these human rights violators uh, rationalize their pos the position as slaveholders? How do they understand themselves? Yeah, I love this question. Okay, so, so I'm not a criminologist. And my area of expertise is not why do lawbreakers break the law or why do people find themselves in positions where it's important or necessary for them to engage in lawbreaking activity. I'm most interested in what happens when what's normal in somebody's life, what's, what's considered to be normal changes. And that moment when the ground is felt to move beneath the feet of people who thought they were doing the right thing, people who told themselves they were stand-up members of their community only to find out, no, you're actually a, insert the social issue here. So I think this is a moment that the United States is having, for example, around the Me Too movement. There are lots of people who were doing things that they call good old boys, sort of, you know, that they, they, they was considered to be normal in an earlier era and is now rightly considered to be completely unacceptable. That feeling 
that some people have of the ground moving underneath their feet is what I want to capture. Because I'm not a criminologist. I want to I want to be there when I see social change happening. And so in this moment, I didn't go and interview prisoners, people in prison who'd been arrested for human trafficking, for example. And I didn't interview repeat offenders, people who just did who just would do anything to make a buck, anything. They go to jail, they bribe themselves out of jail, and then they go and they do the same thing again. Like those are those are it's important we understand those people, but it's good for criminology, like, like criminologists and criminal pathologists or somebody understand them. I'm interested in people like me, people who, who are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And when they learn about them, then have this moment where they have to decide what to do next. I don't even remember what your question was anymore. I got so excited about that. So I'm not, so I don't, I don't, I don't care about, about, you know, I care about rights violators who are violating social norms and not laws, because I think that describes a huge cross-section of, of humanity. It's not just, well, what's happening in this little corner of India, which is where the book's set. But those rip, the implications, I think, ripple out into like my own life or my own family's life or into our, we could have a conversation off mic and say like, what are you doing right now that you really feel you shouldn't be doing? You know, like my carbon footprint's too big, right? And my kids will look back and ask me, how the heck did you have a carbon footprint that big and then sleep at night? And I'm going to have to have an answer to that. And I wrestle with that. And I, and so it's less of like slaveholders. Oh, my God, they're from another planet. And much more asking questions about how in our own lives we find ways of excusing patterns of behavior that hurt other people and rationalize it because of some larger commitments we have, not ideologically, but because we're just part of a milieu in which these things are, are normal. And what, what do slaveholders uh, use as an excuse? They say, they say, oh, this is part of the milieu. This is just normal. <laughs> That's what they say. No, so, I, so, so they responded with a sense of, of loss. I would go in and, and in some cases knowing that, that workers had revolted against the, their, what do we call them, employers, slaveholders, masters, what do you want to call them, had, had These powerful men, they're all men, accustomed to power and privilege, had been challenged by who? By, by nobodies, right? And this, what in the conversations with, with, that I had with them, what came through was this profound sense of hurt, disappointment, frustration. They would say nostalgia. They would say things like, in the past, it used to be like we were family. And now people only work according to money. Now people only want money, and they used to do it for love and affection. Well, wait, wait, okay, now let's, let's switch gears. What is love and affection? My, you know, coming from the, the area of human rights and social movements that I come from, I know that love and affection was underwritten by power disparities, coercion, violence. I would interview the victims, the survivors in many cases, who told me, oh, yeah, he would beat me, and he would threaten my, my children, right? So I know that's, that's, that there's this tension here. Right. And so what they would tell me is, I think, what they would often tell themselves, which is that they were doing workers a favor, that they were the, the lender of last resort for people that were completely left out of all forms of social inclusion, ignoring the fact that they were part of that social. They were part of the mechanism of social exclusion. So I'll, I'll, I'll finish there. But, they, but the, the things that they said to me suggested that they thought in many cases they were the victim of large changes, large social, economic, and political changes. They felt hurt because they had an earlier warm relationship with workers who now were just transactional, shift from, let's say, feudal relationships to some more capital and, and market-based exchanges. And across that, it became clear that they were, I was going to say, like rich characters, <laughs> Um, because I want to include the possibility that they were lying to me, 
uh, that they're lying to themselves, that they don't know what to think, or they're in the middle of coming to a new understanding of what their relationship with these other members of their community should look like. And so I, I don't want to give them a free pass, and neither do I, I um, want to assume that their understanding of this moment is completely settled, if that makes any sense. And also because, I mean, despite of this warm relation that they speak about, you also explain how they try to anticipate to certain needs. They try to strategize to make sure that the debt yeah, of yeah. the slaves cannot be repaid so the relation would be perpetual, right? So what, what are those strategies that they were using? Yeah, so they so in a lot of cases, oh, well, one this happened in many cases, but one one person in particular personified it well or, or represented it well, and he said, you know, you have to. It's impossible to have workers who are satisfied with the way that they're treated under these conditions if you don't know them, and you have to you have to know who these people are, you have to know what they need, you have to know what they want, and that takes attention to detail. And it takes attention to their lives. So if you see that they're going to have a wedding in their family coming up and you know they don't have money, that's a good time to offer them a loan and then to invite them to work for you. And so the way that the system works is people will take loans. They'll take a, a loan against a fixed amount of money as a loan against an a unspecified duration of time for repaying the loan. And so they'll get something like $200, $70. Average loans are often in the 70 to 80 range. And then they'll work for an unspecified period of time. And it's either unspecified because the worker won't think to ask, how much longer do I have? Or the worker will think to ask, how much longer do I have? But then doesn't understand the answer because they, they're lacking some basic education. Um, or they ask and it's answered and they understand it and they push back, but then violence is actually used to keep them in this position. So, so it's important from the, from the perpetrator or landlord or how do you want to call them, slaveholders perspective, to get people who are flexible and compliant in that in that way and they could be coerced in that way and so that's not a matter of just grabbing somebody off the street that's a matter of knowing the other person so all of a sudden i'm going to use the word weaponized i don't know if it's the right word but relationship or intimacy is weaponized or operationalized for the economic gain of the perpetrator because it's better if you don't have to use violence it's better if you can use cajoling and manipulation and guilt and so in some cases a worker would not pay off their debt and then the 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 perpetrator would circle back around and call their family and say, you know that your, your brother or your son or your, you know, is, is not paying me back. I need for one of you to come work. And then the family would be the one that would call the recalcitrant worker and say, come back. You have a debt and an obligation. It would get reinforced by the family. So in this way, well, that's a much better way to, to extract free labor from somebody than the whip or the deed or the contract or the ownership papers, right? It's just, is, is the subtle art of manipulation. So, and if, I'm going to stop there, but this should shed another, like, this should shade again this thing that they told me, which is we used to have a relationship. So are they, do they miss, like, the, that time we would, you know, the deep talks we would have late into the night? Or do they miss the, the ability to use soft power to manipulate people into a hard position? And then um, also when there is a challenge to this kind of uh, uh, relation of exploitation, it's not only workers or slaves who challenge this uh, relationship, but there are also external factors that they pose a threat to the position of, slave, of uh, slaveholders. Uh, which are those? This was, this was 
this is very surprising um, in, in my work. I, I came from the sort of social movement world, came from the community organizing world, and I thought I was going to hear from these perpetrators again and again and again. That damn NGO has cost me a lot of money. I thought, that, I thought they were going to say. I thought they were going to very clearly out these um, external factors that come into their community. But what they were more worried about in time, time after time after time were things like the weather, which had, because of you know, global warming, has led to less rainfall, which has led to less frequent and, and uh, predictable crops, which has led to a, you know, a, a uh, undermining of their economic stability. They complained about new government policies that favored marginalized people at the expense of the real victims, the perpetrators called themselves. And they also complained about changes that were in the market, changes in mobile telephony infrastructure. I mean, like cell phones and roads. They complained about cell phones and roads. They said, you know, it used to be we had a captive audience here. They didn't say it that way exactly. But, you know, it used to be that workers would always work for us and were happy to work for us. But now they have options that they can hear about because a family member goes to another city, calls them up, calls them on a, on a phone that they somehow have access to or a neighbor's phone, or buses now come to our community on roads that are paved. And this wasn't the case in an earlier era. So I was, this was the most surprising, this is the, the hands down most surprising thing for me was the extent to which these larger market forces tied to, you know, to, a, to the marketization of the Indian economy, big public policy moves by the national government and the way those things, and, and then changes in technology, innovation and technology, the way those things actually kind of permeated or settled at, at the lived experience level of these relationships. And so I, that was a real puzzle for me. And I actually, everything I just said to you, I had to go and like really mull over after I came away saying, why are they not pointing one large finger at the social movement organization? And I realized what was happening in time after time is, Social movement organizations were leveraging those, leveraging those larger macro changes to their advantage. And so they were actually then um, able to redeploy new ideas about um, additional markets or new benefits from the government and to bring those into the local context. So, as, so a policy would have been passed 10 years ago, but because of corruption never came to the community. The nonprofit then helps or the community organizing effort helps bring that benefit to the community. And then the, the powerful then complain, not about the NGO, but about the government and the new policy, right? So it's this kind of mi missed attribution. They didn't always point to exactly, they, they pointed where they thought the pain was coming from. And, and sometimes I had a different analysis because I thought that policy was here for 10 years, but it never hurt you because there was nobody here to mobilize people to demand that right be operationalized in the real right here. And that was what they actually um, identified more easily. So we have basically um, bonded laborers that they're uh, confronting the, the system of exploitation sometimes. We have also community organizing. We have international NGOs. We have climate changes. We have policy changes. So how do perpetrators uh, deal with all these factors and react to these uh, very big social changes that they're facing? The, the, the flip, well, the flip answer is they do it the way that we all do which is by, with what resources we have, looking at the data and trying to figure out with our 
and try to figure out what to do. And by say, by resources, I mean like we have money in the bank or we don't. We have debt or we don't. We have like a really creative way of thinking about things or we don't. And then we kind of figure out what to do. And I don't mean to be flipping that. I mean to bring this back to drawing a, a bridge between this kind of like radical other communities, slaveholders. And uh, talk about me, my own life, right? Because they're as equipped as any of us are to deal with big changes in in the market, big changes in policy, big changes in society, and they find themselves again this, with this feeling of the you know the carpet moving, the you know carpet being pulled out from under them, or the ground shifting beneath their feet. They have that feeling. That's not an alien feeling to people. It's that moment you realize somebody's going to break up with you, and you're like, oh no, you know that. That's never happened to me, but that moment, <laughs> I imagine, I've been told by others. Um, that moment is something that's familiar. So what they did is they did something that's very different than social movement theory says. Well, the, it, repression happens. Right. It's pretty simple. It's repression or it's the the social movement gets victory, which is that the other side quits or the other side decides they're going to harass you in some way. They're going to they're going to you know send the police after you or make your organization illegal or whatever. And and what I found in these conversations is that that's right. But it's a part of the story. And then the bigger part of the story is that these rights violators look at their resources and try to figure out what to do. And sometimes their first instinct is bad. And they think they have power that they don't have anymore because the social movement has been successful. So I saw cases where uh, a perpetrator had, who had always gotten their way through violence uh, was challenged by workers. And the workers say, you know, refuse, um, refuse to work for free under the threats of violence anymore. And then violence stops working. And so the perpetrator says, well, and I'll, you know, initiate violence. And then the perpetrator initiates violence. So I saw in one context, there's a rebellion and the, and the, and the people rose up and they killed a member of the landlord class and, and the landlord class were like put back on their heel. You know, they didn't know what to do next because that had never happened. And so they thought that the thing they were going to be able to do easily that had always worked in the past was going to work again. And so what this means is it's kind of simple. You know, you think about it. Why did I just get dumped? Well, I got dumped because maybe I was inattentive and, and unresponsive and I'm not a good communicator. We do some self-assessment. So what I found is that these perpetrators, they uh, they underwent some self-assessment and not sort of, a, oh, I see that I've been wrong all, this, all these years, but, oh, maybe violence doesn't work. And they would shift other schemes and other plots and other plans. And sometimes those were just as manipulative and just as underhanded and just as um, extractive, but they were new and it was something, it took some adapt adaptation. And so that the short, the short, you know, answer to that is that some of them doubled down and tried even harder to fight for the old way of managing people through slavery. And they did this by doubling down on violence and others gave up. They said, you know what? I looked at my assets. I looked at my resources. I looked at my debts and I'm going to walk away from this thing. And I'm just not going to do it anymore. And in this, and in this way, I think we were, the book is able to speak to those moments when perpetrators get worse. Um, and when they actually back off and, and decide that uh, this is no longer a way of life that's, that they're willing to live, which I think describes, uh, Again, where are these segregationists, right? There's this, this mutated into new forms of racism, but there are very few people advocating segregation now because it, you know, they, they assessed the situation, they looked at the laws, they looked at big changes, and now they had to change their mind. And now looking at the big picture, um, so what have you learned 
about slavery more broadly uh, by talking to the perpetrators, by seeing how they strategize and how they face these dilemmas and so on. It it made me rethink the role of, not the role, I was going to say the role of public policy, but I, but I should instead say the way that we're using public policy to address rights violations like slavery. So something like a billion dollars has been spent um, in the first 10 years or so of the most recent wave of the anti-slavery movement. The anti-slavery movement is very old. It's a couple hundred years old. Um, one of the earliest and, and most notable forms of mobilization against a human rights violation. This iteration has raised a billion dollars, and a lot of that has gone toward doing very important work identifying the needs, the, the issue, and the needs of of, of survivors, of victims and survivors. And that's important. But we know far less about how our policy interventions and how all of those dollars should be invested in reducing perpetration by perpetrators. And and just one vignette might like shed light on this. In, in one interview with a perpetrator, it came to light that he was, he had leveraged a worker you know, the sort of initial debt he had used to leverage this worker to bonded that worker to him. He'd gotten that original debt from the Grameen, original money from the Grameen Bank. So this perpetrator, this contemporary slaveholder is simultaneously a net beneficiary of an international um, banking program meant to lend money to the deserving poor. So this perpetrator is simultaneously a rights violator and a key aspect of a development theory. So we could be asking ourselves questions like, how, are de- how is money spent in the aid and development world being used to actually help move perpetrators out of perpetra- you know, perpetrating uh, livelihoods and into livelihoods that are non-exploitative, for example? So uh, you know, there's a lot of other things that sort of redound from this that are more abstract, like what happens to human relationships over time when they've been marked by slavery. But just the top note public policy issue is we're spending a bunch of money on this. And if we are, we should be looking at the whole problem and not just piece of, a piece of the problem. Okay. And um, already trying to wrap up uh, the interview a bit, um, what are the, you think like the key takeaways from, uh, from your book and from what you have learned uh, from being like for such a long time in India and talking to so many people involved in uh, slavery, both as perpetrators and those who suffered it? Yeah, the, the, do you have my, let me see the book. The, the takeaway for me is like this last line from Solzhenitsyn that says that the line of good and evil cuts through the heart of all, of all people, right? And that's the, I can't find it. I'm not going to like flip, I'm going to flip through the pages in front of the microphone. But this is the puzzle, right? The puzzle is, and this is a theme through our whole conversation is, how is it that people identify the moment that they're in and then recognize um, how to be on the right side of history? And it's, and it comes far more from a, a sense of a sense that I in my own life am part of systems of oppression that I don't understand. Then it is a sense of like, well, let's end slavery by, you know, focusing on people in some other place. But it's really how can we better understand the moment that we're in in order to be um, on the side of truth, justice, and, and beauty. That's that's the puzzle, right? So that's, <laughs> that's the puzzle. That's, I'll, I'll leave it there. And now also I was wondering, after having finished this book and uh, having worked for such a long time on this, what are you currently working on? 
Oh, <laughs> this is like the now for something completely different. Um, I just finished a book about drones, satellites, and hot air balloons <laughs> uh, because I'm fascinated by how new technology allows us to see things from new spaces and what that does for politics. And so um, while I was at a member of the faculty at Central European University where we met each other, um, I bought a drone for a class on human rights advocacy, and we used that drone to document protests. And it got me thinking about how it is that being able to document human rights violations or social movements from a new perspective shifts balances of power between um, the people and the powerful. And it turns out that lots and lots of work has been done on social media and the power of Twitter, the power of Instagram or Facebook and these sort of networking technologies, but not a lot has been written about the, um, about other technologies. Like we have no, like we don't have a lot of books about the barricades, but they're an important part of, you know, the, the French revolution. So anyway, it's a book about technology and, uh, and how it affects social movements and, and challenges. Then I'm starting a new book that comes out of this project in which I look at the perpetrators and, and their victims as a, as a set. So this book came exclusively from conversations with perpetrators, but um, in my field work, I, I spoke to lots of people. And so I'm, going, I'm working on a book now that's going to explore those two sides, those two facets to the same relational moment. And then from this work that you've been doing lately, um... Which new books would you recommend to our audience if uh, they want to learn more about slavery or about technology or social movements more general? Yes, maybe two, two books. Um, at the University of Nottingham, my colleague Kevin Bales, who wrote Disposable People, which is a seminal book in my field that everybody should read, has also written a new book called Blood and Earth. Um, and, it's a, and it ties together the way that um, slavery and environmental degradation are bound up in one within one another. And he, he finds essentially that if we were to, a, like lots of slavery contributes to global warming and contributes to the degradation of the environment. And if we were to address slavery, we would have a knock-on effect of essentially um, ending slavery and doing less harm to the environment, let's say. And then the second is, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but um, Arand Giridharas has written a book called Winners Take All, how the elite charade of changing the world. And it's like a critical take on so, sort of so the social entrepreneurship, Davos, um, Aspen Institute, um, TED, TED, you know, TED Talk kind of way of uh, having thought leaders who then have all these solutions, but then we overlook things like the importance of the state and regulating markets and that sort of thing. So it's a good provocative read. I recommend that. <laughs> so two very good recommendations. Um, So thank you so much for the interview. Today I've been talking to Professor Austin Choi Fitzpatrick from the University of San Diego and the University of Nottingham about his book, who was published last year with Columbia University Press, What Slaveholders Think, How Contemporary Perpetrators Rationalize What They Do. So thank you so much for the conversation, Austin, and all the best. This was fun. Thank you so much.